So I'm a child of the 80s, and uh, uh, that just means that was my growing up years. And the big TV show, you know, on the three or four channels that we had uh, at the time, what the big TV show, the number one TV show was Cheers. Remember this show? Uh, and I know you already feel the tension, right? Because we're a conservative evangelical church, and uh, I'm mentioning a bar TV show about a bar. So um, I'll take all your email uh, that you're going to send. No, but when I was a teenager, this was the number one show on television, even before Seinfeld, right? And um, I just remember the jingle that they used to play, or the introduction song that they used to play, right? You probably know it, right? Um, some, uh, it, it had to do with the idea that life is hard, and every once in a while, wouldn't it be nice just to get away to a place where everybody knows you're, and they're always glad you, yeah, see? Uh, you guys have been programmed by the mainstream media just like I have. Now, you know, there was a cast of characters and, and whatever, and what, what, what unfolded inside the walls of those, of the four walls of that establishment was just basic nonsense, just designed to entertain us, right? But it, it begs a question, right? Like, why do we come to church? Why do we, why do we, on Sundays, on Sunday morning, which we consider the Lord's Day, we gather here in the four walls, we, like we're weird, right? We, we, we drive in the snow and we gather ourselves in these four walls. For what? For what? Why do churches uh, gather? Now, uh, over time, if you've been part of a church for any amount of time, right, it breeds familiarity, right? Like, I come to church and I expect to see Ray Jacobs, and I expect to see Jim Tainer, and I expect Jim to be ornery. And I expect to see Bill Fenton back there uh, just doing an excellent job of playing the drums. Uh, and I know something's wrong in the world if Bob Erlinson isn't in church. I mean, he's, if, some, if Bob's not here, I've got to call him and see what's going on, right? And I expect to see Nancy uh, usually start on the organ and then run around the back to play the piano and then run around the back again to play the organ, like doing a, her magician's trick, right? But why do we come, why do we gather here? Why do we take this moment? On a Sunday morning, I mean, it's weird. We come into this, we, you, you, you come into church and you maybe go into the commons, get a cup of coffee and you chit-chat with some folks that you know. And, um, and then you come in here and sit down and then at a particular moment in time, we all get quiet and we sing. We sing songs about the Lord and all the wonderful, magnificent qualities that He possesses and the things that He's done. And then we, you know, make some announcements about what's going on in our, com in our little community called Delaware Bible Church, and then we, uh, you know, we do some praying for, for folks, and then, and then we listen to me hammer on for what seems like an eternity most of the time, right? Do we do that to feel good? Do we, we, do we just do that simply because <clears throat> sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came? Well, I would, I would say no. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's quite a bit more than that, actually. There is, it is a blessing that we get to come to a place where we have knowledge of each other. That's a, one of the greatest gifts that God's given us is the, is the gift of fellowship. But we come here to be challenged, right? We come here because we're a group of people that are in pursuit of something. And that pursuit is to, to grow and change and become more like Jesus. 
because we all recognize that we're sinners and that we're in the process of growth. And so, here's, here's the bottom line. As, as your pastor, or one of the three pastors, in an ideal world, what I would like for you to do each and every day is to get up and to, and to spend meaningful time with God in His Word and in prayer, to, to perhaps sometime throughout the day give a call to a, another brother or sister, uh, check in on them, pray for them, maybe just have some fellowship with them, whatever. It, that's, the, that's, what I would, that's the ideal world, right? That your life, your spiritual life would be rich and growing. But I'm also a realist. And I understand, you know, I was a, a young man one time, and, and I had four little kids in my house, and, and uh, the challenges of work and family balance and all this kind of stuff. And so sometimes when the hustle and bustle of life just kind of steamrolled me, here's what I knew. If I couldn't claw my way into God's Word over the course of a week, I knew that at the, at the very beginning, at the, on the first day of the week on Sunday, I would be able to go into a room filled with my brothers and sisters, and they would be happy that I'm there, and I'd be happy that they're there, and then we would join our voices together in song about higher things, and then I would sit there, and uh, someone who, who I love and someone who loved me would teach from God's Word about the, the realities of life and the glories of God. So I think that spending this time together is important. It's, it's critically important. It's not a bad thing. And I hope that over the course of our time together, we can, we can gain a, a new perspective and a deeper understanding of the breadth and the depth and the width of God's love for us, and we can choose to try to gr- make our love larger our love for God and our love for others. And of course, in doing so, this is going to change how we live, our actions, the way we use our words and how we use all of the resources that God has given us. So that's, that's what we're doing here, right? That's what we're doing here. And so we're about to study this, this message that Peter is going to give on the day of Pentecost. It's still the day of Pentecost. They've just spoken in tongues. And some of the folks in the crowd have said, what does this mean? And other folks in the crowd have said, these guys are drunk. And so now Peter's going to get up and he's going to give what I'm calling, and give me a little grace here, give me a little latitude, the first church sermon. There's been sermons preached before this. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But the church is beginning to form. The Holy Spirit has come, and God's people are starting to form themselves into the church. It hasn't fully arrived yet, but it's, it's coming. And Peter's going to give up, get up and and give a sermon. And what he's going to do in this sermon is he's going to give a defense. He's going to pull from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Back then it was just their Bible. He's going to pull from the scriptures and he's going to, he's going to lay out an argument as to what is happening. And he's going to make a case that, that the Jesus, the very Jesus that the, the folks there that they crucified and that he was raised back to life, that he is the Christ. He's going to make that argument. And so as, as a pastor of this church, I was looking at this message and I was going, well, gee whiz, does this church, does Delaware Bible Church, do the, the folks sitting here today, do you guys need to hear a defense of that Jesus is the Christ? And I, said, I concluded, no, you, you guys know this, right? You're, you're followers of Jesus Christ. And so, and so here's what we're going to do today. 
we're going to look at this sermon and we're going to trace through Peter's argument, but we're also going to, we're going to, I believe this sermon helps us to understand what a good sermon looks like. So the big question is, how does Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost help us to understand how a good sermon should be constructed? What are the elements of a good biblical, you know, a good sermon? And I think this will help you because in the world that we live in today, whether we like to admit it or not, there are, there are folks out there, church folks, are folks that claim to be part of the church, that are twisting the Scripture, that are, that are inserting things in that don't belong or stripping things out that do belong. And, and I think this sermon helps us to at least get a grasp on how to be mindful of what makes up a good sermon. So let's just go through this, and we'll, we'll, I, I hope that you'll see, uh, I hope that this will be edifying and helpful to you. First of all, the sermon must be relevant to real life. The, the sermon must be relevant to real life. In other words, the folks there, they've got up, they've, they've, they've talked about the mighty works of God and all these foreign tongues, and the people presumably have seen or have heard the, uh, you know, the, the sound of rushing wind, and they've seen the tongues of fire that are resting on these men, and, and some are asking, what does this mean? This is a legitimate question, and so Peter is going to get up, and he's going to give them an answer. He's going to give them a logical, coherent answer as to what is going on. But we all have to admit, and if I'm humble, I think I would admit that sometimes I'm guilty of the fact that some sermons answer questions that nobody's asking, right? They're so high theological, highfalutin sermons that are pitched over the heads of most people. They may make, your, they may make my seminary professors happy, but uh, you'll be sitting there going, huh? And so... A sermon has to connect to real life, and that's what Peter is doing here. For example, um, nobody uh, nobody wants to hear a sermon entitled, uh, uh, Pack the Hay Bales Tight So You Can Stack Them Nine High. Nobody wants to hear that, do they? No, nobody wants to hear that sermon. Or Peter Peter could have, instead of giving a defense for what had happened, Peter could have uh, done a sermon like this. Let's do an analysis of all the times the Holy Spirit was uh, shown in, in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament. Or he could have done 10 reasons why uh, we're not drunk, okay? But that's not the question that they, were, that they needed to hear. What they needed to hear is, what does this all mean? And that's what he's going to attempt to answer. And so I think that if I'm doing my job right, and if, if pastors are doing their jobs right, uh, as they work their way through the text of Scripture, they're trying to figure, they're trying to think about, I, 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 and I am, I'm legitimately trying to think throughout the week about you guys and what you're going through and the questions that you're answering and what does this text, what does a text, particular text address and then try to answer some, some of those questions. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If the Word of God is going to illuminate the ground that we walk on in this life, right, then our use of it should connect to real life so that we, cannot, so that we will not stumble and so that we can see clearly the path that God has laid out in front of us. Okay, so the sermon has to be relevant to real life. Second, the sermon must connect with what God has said in His Word. This is key, right? This is key. You don't want to know my opinion on something. You don't want to know what I, you know, just my, what I fancy or my, soap, my soapbox issue. 
What, we, uh, what a good sermon does is it, it, it connects with what God has said. Peter is going to go into the only Bible that they had available to them at the time, the Old Testament. He's going to go into and he's going to quote from three different passages of Scripture. He's going to quote from the prophet Joel, and then he's going to quote the Psalms twice, in two different Psalms, to, to lay out a case and make an argument. And so, he's going to reference Joel 2, Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. And he's going to do so in context. In context. In other words, there's a lot of uh, preachers today that will go and find some Old Testament obscure text, right? And they'll rip it out of its context and they'll say, and they'll make a big point. Now, a, 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 key, a key in recognizing this is when that text is part of a, a, of a longer narrative, right? There's a, there's a story being told or a narrative being told, and they go and they just grab one or two verses out of it and then make a big point out of it. But if you went back and just read the thing in its context, it would mean something completely different. And so we've got to keep context in mind. And Peter, this fisherman, this relatively uneducated man when compared to, say, the Apostle Paul, does a brilliant job of going into the Old Testament and taking these three passages and using them, but he, he's, they're actually used in context. Now, uh, again, pastors do this all the time. Um, so let's, let's take a little bit of a test here this morning. Philippians 4.13, very quotable passage of Scripture. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now listen, I've heard this quoted before basketball games. You know, we can do it, guys. Philippians 4.13, we got this. We can do all things, right? I've heard this quoted when folks are going through all different kinds of trials. You know, I can overcome this trial Philippians 4.13. What is the context of Philippians 4.13? It's contentment. It's contentment. And so in, if, to quote Philippians 4.13 out of its context, it's a misuse of Scripture, right? It's a misuse of Scripture. Here's a classic one. Uh, Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I mean, Used to be, if you go to the Christian bookstore, you could find posters of this, you could find tapestries, cross stitch, whatever, of this. What is the context of Jeremiah? Who, okay, who is Jeremiah talking to? The Israelites. And what, what's going on with the Israelites at this particular moment? Are they just sitting around thinking about their future and God says to them, I know the plans that I have for you? They're in Babylonian captivity. Life is hard. And so God, what's God talking about? He's talking about the future restoration of Israel after the exile because of their what? Their disobedience to God, right? So this, that, that, that gives Jeremiah 29-11 a, a whole new meaning, right? It's not just an encouraging text for you to, to whip out and say, you know, hey, this, this is you know, because of, because of Israel's disobedience, she was in captivity, and God has, has let them experience some of the fruit of their own actions, as he promised that he would. But he also gives them hope and says, you've got a future. It's interesting. So, you've got to handle the text in context, and Peter does a very good job of that. 
you also have to base it in God's authority. He's basing it in, in God's authority, not in Peter's. Peter is not going out there and saying, now listen, men of Israel, men of Judea, I'm an apostle. Heed my words. He doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He appeals to what God has said. And can I just say, um, uh, uh, when it comes to titles and and all this stuff in the, in the church, the hierarchy and all this kind of stuff. I, this is what I think. This is what I believe. That the pastor of a church is nothing more than a servant. A servant who uh, tries to explain as best he can what God's Word says and apply God's Word to our everyday lives. In other words, my authority stops at the Word of God. I, I can't command you to do something I can only remind you what God has said, right? And so he's, Peter is, is appealing to what God has said in Joel and in the Psalms, not to his own person. It's a huge thing. Now, I, I bring this up to, because I, I want to give a word of warning this morning, uh, because here's a trend that I see in the wider church, not Delaware Bible Church, but the wider church, which is this. Somebody will go out, and perhaps man or woman, and, and they'll write books and make studies, and they'll, and they'll gain a big following and have lots of influence in the church. And then <clears throat> what happens is, I think, is because we come to understand that that person is a trustworthy person, we might begin to just kind of let our guard down a little bit as to what they're saying and to not do a good job of examining what they're saying and comparing what they're saying to what the Word of God says. And so over time, we have to understand these are sinful human beings, and over time, they can lead us perhaps in a different direction than God's Word. I see this happening. And so I, want us, I just want, to remind ourse- I want us to remind ourselves that um, we must operate on the Word of God. In, in Acts, I think it's Acts 17, the Bereans, the Bereans, uh, Paul, uh, Paul talks about them, the Bereans... <laughs> Paul was impressed with the Bereans because they took everything that he said and they compared it to what? What the Scripture said, right? Now, can we all agree that the Apostle Paul is a pretty important guy in church history? And yet he was impressed because the Bereans, they just didn't trust every word that came out of Paul's mouth, but they took what he said and they compared it to the Word of God to see if it was true. And so whether it's me or whether it's the the celebrity pastor or the popular pastor that you read their books or, or follow their studies, we have to understand what God has said. We don't want to get fooled, folks. 2 Peter 1.16 says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Right? Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. There's a lot of things about Delaware Bible Church and about the church in general that is tradition, that's maybe human thinking. And God does allow us some freedom to, to establish these things. But when those things solidify into we can't do anything else because our tradition says we must, uh, we've got to be careful with that. We've got to compare what we're doing with what the Word of God says. Okay, the third thing is, is that the sermon must be logical. 
The sermon must be logical. I marvel sometimes at when God allowed Jesus to come on the scene. You know, we know that the, the background context was the Roman Empire. The Romans built the roads. Why? Not just for easy transportation, but also to get their armies to the point of conflict quickly so that they could maintain the empire. Well, lo and behold, Jesus comes on the scene, dies, crucified, buried, rose again. The church is established. The church comes under persecution. And what? The gospel spreads like wildfire around the known world. One of the reasons is because of the roads. In other words, God uh, ordained that, that at that particular time, the word could get out. Well, the same thing holds true in, G, in what I'm about to tell you. In Jesus' day, it just so happened that there was a lot of students of what's called rhetoric or the art of using a, a logical argument to persuade. And there had been battles raging for the centuries leading up to this between, for example, the sophists or the sophists who were very articulate in their language but were criticized because their arguments weren't very deep. And the philosophers who had very good sound arguments but weren't all that good at articulating themselves. And when these two worlds kind of collided, what, you, what came out of that was what was valued in the culture at that time was, and I think it still is to this day, someone who knows their stuff and can articulate it in a clear and understandable way. And so Peter gets up and look at what he says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And Oh, I'm sorry, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So right off the top, he's taking away the whole their drunk argument by saying, it's only 9 a.m., guys. We'd have to be drinking for a long time to get, to get this drunk, right? Verse 16, now he's going to give them what they need to hear. He's going to lay out the logical argument. Verse 16, but this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the, the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you know anything about the prophet Joel, if you know anything about the book of Joel, it's all about the day of the Lord, right? The, the great and terrible day of the Lord, and it's coming. And scholars will tell you that they believe that, that every once in a while we have kind of a small day of the Lord kind of a thing, a catastrophe that happens that's pointing to the great and terrible day of the Lord at the end of time when Christ returns and so this passage that he's quoting kind of starts, uh, it, it, it kind of begins in, in the days that they're living through at that time, in the, in the times before, you know, Jesus and, and the time leading up to the day that they're in, and, then, and I believe that passage extends to the end of days, at the end where the sun and the moon, or the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. 
So this is a very interesting passage, right? So what's Peter going to say about it? He, he quotes the passage, then he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now these, these two sentences are hard to understand, right? He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it sounds like God planned it, but... Next sentence, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God planned it, but these men did it. It's weird, right? It, it, it shows that interplay, right, of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loose, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible possible for him to be held by it. So what has Peter done? He's quoted Joel, and he's saying, look, these signs and these wonders that Joel talked about, Jesus dis displayed them in his life. He displayed them while he was on the earth, not only in his life, but in his death and his resurrection, he displayed what the prophet Joel was speaking about. And then he quotes a psalm, a psalm of David. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." So Peter quotes the psalm, and then, he, and then he makes an explanation. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about, this, about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb was with, is with us to this day. Hey, you want to go see David's tomb? It's right over yonder. Just go take a look at it. It's right over there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. So now... Peter is making reference to the Davidic covenant, this agreement that God made or this, this uh, promise that God made to David saying that there will always be, you, you will have the kingdom and a king from your line on the throne. That was a promise that God made to David. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on, upon the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. We all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from God, or from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, okay, let's stop right there. So what he's saying is, is that, David, in this psalm, wasn't talking about himself, that, he, that God would not abandon him to, to Sheol or the grave. David was actually talking and prophesying about one is, that is to come, and that one that is to come is Jesus. And connecting it back to Joel, we are now experiencing what you're experiencing right now. You've asked the question, what does this all mean? And I'm telling you that Joel and David point back, and what's happening now is the Spirit is being poured out upon his people, the Holy Spirit. 
And then he goes on and quotes one more time a psalm. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, here's the quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What does that mean? It means that David was not, David viewed this one that would to come, this one that would come, not as someone that was, subju- that was under his authority, but someone that was greater than him. He's my Lord. And that he's going to sit at the right hand of God until God makes his enemies his footstool. Jesus' enemies, Jesus' footstool. And we know that right now, God, uh, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, inter- intervening, intercessing on our behalf, and that when he returns and leaves that, he will conquer all of his enemies. The Bible makes that very clear. So what's he, what does Peter then say? Verse 36, Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. He's our master. He's the Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see the logical flow of the argument here. From the beginning to the end. He's making, they're asking the question, what does this all mean? What does this mean? The prophets foretold of it, and now it's here. This Jesus that you thought was some insurrectionist, that you, you perhaps thought was some heretic, the one that you crucified, he was the Christ. The one that Joel pointed to, the one that David pointed to, he is the Christ, and he has been resurrected. Now, we need to be careful. Peter makes a very logical argument, but sometimes, uh, sometimes people don't make such a logical argument, and they commit many logical fallacies. I, I, thought, uh, I didn't think of, I found an interesting example. Here, here's an interesting example of a logical fallacy. Uh, why, now, you've got to put on your thinking caps, because I know this is going to be a challenge for you. Why are fire engines red? Well, they have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is twelve. Twelve inches makes a ruler. A ruler is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sails the seven seas. The seven seas have fish. Fish have fins. The fins hate the Russians. (laughs) Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian. So they are red. That, that's a perfectly logical argument. No, no it's a terrible argument. There's, it's full of logical fallacies that don't make any sense. But I would, I would argue that uh, I've heard sermons, sometimes, sometimes in a sermon a logical fallacy is very hard to spot, but sometimes they're just about this easy. So let's pay attention and make sure that the speaker is giving a logical argument. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. We have to cultivate our brains and our reasoning abilities to be able to spot these things. All right, last couple. The sermon must give us God's understanding of life as it's happening. The sermon must give us an understanding of life as it's happening. 
These people that, that Peter was talking to are trapped into a worldview that informs them that the person that they crucified was a bad guy. And it's been 50 days since Jesus hung on the cross, and they were probably kind of patting themselves on the back saying, good job, we, we thwarted this heretic from ha- taking hold uh, within, our, within our group, within the Jewish faith. Peter comes along and says, no, 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 that's not what happened at all. You have, a, you have a wrong understanding of life. Let's let God's Word and what you're seeing and experiencing correct that. And so he gives them a proper understanding of what is happening. Romans 15.4 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Hope is an absolutely, hear me, hope is an absolutely gigantic thing. One of the things that God's Word does for us as Christians is it helps us to understand and reframe trials. Because the reality of the situation is is that the unbelieving world, and even some within the Christian faith, will view trials as either terrible things that should not be happening or a sign of God's disfavor in our lives. And let's just stipulate that the trial that you're going through is just, it's not a direct result of anything that you've done. Perhaps you've just taken ill or there's been some circumstances that have unfolded outside of your control and now you're experiencing an enormous trial in your life. God's Word comes along and says, that the trial that you're facing is not a sign of God's displeasure or His lack of love, but instead, it's the opposite. That if you allow God, God, as this trial is going on, to do work in your life, to change your heart, to, to mold you into the image of Christ, that this is one of the tools that God uses for your good. And let's all admit that if we adopted the first position, that going through trials is just a sign of God's disfavor, then every time that we would hit a trial, that we would lose, we would be tempted to and probably lose hope. But because we know that the Word of God says what it says, and because we know that we are to count it all joy when we encounter various trials, James, that we can be hopeful even through each and every one of them, every facet of the trial. And we can, instead of saying, God, take this away, I don't want this in my life, we can say, God, help us to grow through this. So a sermon must give us an understanding of life as it's happening. I encourage you to jot down Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Um, Again, it's God's process for growth and change, which is one of the big reasons why we're here It's one of the big reasons that God doesn't just snap us off the earth after we trust Jesus as our Savior. It's because of He's shaping us in the image of His Son. All right, last one. The sermon must not shy away from difficult truths. The sermon must not shy away from difficult truths. I want you just to put yourself in Peter's shoes for just a minute because this man just stood in front of, presumably, a whole bunch of people that were in support of the idea and, and 
were probably okay with the fact that Jesus was crucified, and he stands in front of these people with his two feet on the ground and, saying, and says, this guy, Jesus, was the Christ, and you killed him. I don't think that's a sermon I would want to preach when stoning is still legal. Right? In fact, we're going to see later on in the book of Acts, another preacher is going to get stoned for what they say. One of the things that, one of the things that I'm committed to as a pastor is, is and can we just all say, we're going to go a little long today, maybe 10 minutes. So just, uh, just bear with me. One of the things I'm committed to as a pastor is to preach through books of the Bible. You've, you've probably noted that that's my, that's my way. Now, there's exceptions. You know, Christmas and Easter and, and, and special events or whatever. We, we take a break and we do something. But I get a little bit concerned about churches. I'm not saying this is, I'm not saying this is wrong or sinful. I'm just saying I get concerned about churches that... The month of January is a topical series on this, and the month of February is a topical, ser- a topical series on that, and March is a topical series on something else. Because you know what I could do? If that, if that was me, my temptation would be every time something difficult comes up, I could just not cover that. But because I'm preaching through books of the Bible... When a difficult passage or a difficult topic or something that I know that many of you in the room are not going to want to hear, I'm forced to preach through it. And, and can I just say, to your credit, uh, I have appreciated the fact that you recognize that those messages are hard to preach, and I've also, re- I've also appreciated your response. Because the response is typically, I know that was hard to say, and it's not a message that we want to hear sometimes in our flesh, but thank you for preaching the truth and telling us straight. And that's the way it should be. And so Peter, Peter does not give them the, the vision, a picture of life that says, I'm okay, you're okay. He stands in front of them and he says simply, what is the truth? This man, this Jesus was the Christ. He is our Lord. He is our Christ. And you crucified him. Which is what they needed to hear. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You see the picture that's presented here? This, this, the picture that's presented here is not of... The Word of God is, is like a, a terry cloth robe that's just come out of the dryer. And you wrap yourself in it and you feel warm and loved. That's not the image that's painted here. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and the spirit, the joints of, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not only is this thing sharp and painful, but this thing can even discern the intentions of your heart. I mean, this is, it's big. So we must not shy away from difficult truths. Why can we look at this sermon and see, why is this sermon, this first church sermon, why is this helpful? Here's my answer. The first church sermon provides a pattern 
that you can listen for today. We should expect to hear what God has to say on the issues of this life in a logical way that confronts us in our sin. A few things, just a few simple applications. Uh, you know, number one, you know, now that you've been exposed to the proper sermon, use it to compare other sermons so you can tell the difference between a good one and perhaps a bad one. Now, secondly, and, um, you know, this is not me being, hopefully you don't see this as me being mean or bossy, but I'm asking each one of you sincerely to read on your own this week, perhaps several times, uh, verses 37 to the end of chapter 2. Acts 2, 37 to the end, 37 to 47. That's next week's portion of Scripture. Because next week's portion is going to be one of those sermons, I believe, it's going to be hard to hear. So read ahead to the end of chapter, of the end of the chapter in preparation for next week as we learn how to properly respond. Respond to what? Respond to God's word. And then finally, and this is this is more. Can I just tell you, uh, this, is, this is not a book for the uh, faint of heart or, the, <laughs> or the, the, uh, the one that does not love big words. Uh, this book, Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson, if you can master this book, there's not, a, there's not a slipshod sermon that can get past you. Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson, it's a good book. That's where the fire engine, fire, fire trucks read, that was in here, in Logical Fallacies chapter.